This episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Test Tube, All In with Chris Hayes, Decode DC, The David Pakman Show, Radio Dispatch, The Black Agenda Report, Comedian Lee Camp, This Week in Blackness, Activism from Black Brunch, and The Young Turks. Riots and protests broke out during July and August 2014 over the killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. Then, in late November and early December, a grand jury decided not to criminally charge the police officers who were responsible for the two deaths, and protests erupted again. So, what are grand juries, and how important are they really? Well, a grand jury is like a test run for the prosecution. It's a way for the prosecution to see if there is enough evidence to pursue criminal charges, like murder. A grand jury differs from a trial jury mainly because it's entirely run by the prosecution, and it is just determining whether or not criminal charges should be levied. There is also no judge and no defense attorney. The prosecutor basically just throws all possible evidence, witness accounts, and even hearsay testimony at a jury to see if, in the right conditions, a jury might decide that there was probable cause. The jury usually numbers between 16 and 23 people, called at random, just like criminal juries. Although a grand jury's decision is independent of a trial jury's verdict, it is often a good indicator of the direction that the official trial will take. In this case, the prosecutor found that there was not enough evidence to bring these cases to trial, even though Garner's case was officially ruled a homicide and both men were unarmed. These decisions are also controversial because grand juries usually choose to indict. Reports have said that 99% of all cases that go before a federal grand jury end with the prosecution taking the case to criminal trial, and so do the majority of state grand juries. There's a famous quote from a former chief judge of New York that grand juries will indict a ham sandwich if the prosecution wants them to. However, the statistics also show that grand juries rarely indict a police officer. An investigation by the Houston Chronicle found that police have been nearly immune from criminal charges in shootings in large cities. For example, grand juries in Dallas, Texas reviewed 81 officer-related shootings between 2008 and 2012 and indicted only one person. Grand juries can be useful. If they choose to indict, a judge will see that there is enough evidence to move forward and the trial will be expedited. The problem here is that most grand juries involving police action choose not to indict. Many feel this is because the victims of that police action, people like Michael Brown and Eric Garner, have no one fighting for them in front of the grand jury. Prosecutors are selected by the state and not the victim's families. Today, for the first time since the Ferguson grand jury decision in the shooting death of unarmed teenager Michael Brown came down, Prosecutor Bob McCullough is now speaking out. He's defending himself after scrutiny over who he put on the stand. All In has been reporting on problems with the testimony from Witness 40 for over a week. That witness said Brown went, quote, running right at the cop like a football player, and many in the media seized on that quote. 
quote, and I'm reading, like a football player with his head down charging. That Michael Brown, you know, was charging like a football player, full force. One witness described it as charging at Officer Wilson like a football player with his head down. Chris Hayes has been reporting on why that witness's credibility is suspect, as have other journalists. And the grand jury documents show a special problem with this witness. They showed that the investigators knew at the time that her story didn't add up. Today, McCullough felt compelled to address critics who say he shouldn't have put such a suspect witness on the stand at all. In a 30-minute interview with a St. Louis radio station, he answered a question apparently referring to those problems with Witness 40. There's talk of one witness now, and this was a lady who clearly wasn't present uh, when this occurred. And she, she recounted the statement that was, you know, right out of the newspaper about, uh, you know, um, uh, Wilson's actions and right down the line with Wilson's actions, even though I'm sure she was nowhere near the place. That is remarkable. The prosecutor saying he knew the person he called as a witness to the incident was not a witness. She wasn't even there. I want to read that quote back. Quote, I'm sure she was nowhere near the place. Now, this was meant to be some kind of explanatory interview for Mr. McCullough, but it's also a pretty remarkable admission. He's now saying that getting this testimony from people like Witness 40, though, this was all part of the official plan. Well, early on, I decided that, that uh, anyone who claimed to have witnessed anything was, was going to be presented to the grand jury. So anyone who claimed to be a witness got to speak, apparently regardless of evidence that showed they weren't a witness to the killing. And today, McCullough said he'd be criticized if he didn't let these would-be witnesses testify. I knew that no matter how I handled this, there'd be criticism of it. And so if I didn't put those witnesses on, then we'd be discussing now why I didn't put those witnesses on, even though, you know, and, and you know, even though their, their statements were not accurate. You don't need to be a lawyer to know that doesn't make any sense. It is wrong for a prosecutor to put forward witnesses he believes are lying. And I think it's hard to imagine anyone criticizing him for sticking to only, you know, the reliable witnesses, the ones who were there, the ones who saw the incident. That, after all, is his job. Joining me now, Jonathan Shapiro, a former federal prosecutor and special assistant to, to former U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. Good evening to you. I, I want to mention you're the author of a book, Lawyers, Liars, and the Art of Storytelling. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about storytelling with you, but more truth. And why would a prosecutor say that he should put people on the stand in a grand jury that he didn't think were telling the truth. So he shouldn't, and no lawyer should. The rules of professional conduct uh, prohibit it. Rule 3.3 specifically says a lawyer shall not put a witness before a tribunal, including a grand jury, if the lawyer, including a prosecutor, knows the person is not telling the truth. You can't do it. It's illegal. It's called suborning perjury. If you do it, the sanctions that you face are contempt of court, sanctions by your state bar, in this case the state of Missouri, or prison. You'd be indicted for it. The question is, what did this prosecutor know and when did he know it? If he knew that that witness, number 40, was lying and wasn't there, he had a ethical, legal, and professional duty to not put the witness on the stand. If he found out about it later, he had a separate obligation to
to notify the tribunal, that is, go into the grand jury and say, that witness lied to you. The idea that you're able to sort of open up uh, the grand jury witness stand to anybody who wants to have a say, like it's a, like it's a group meeting or something, is outrageous. I've never heard of a prosecutor um, suggest that that's an appropriate way to handle what is, after all, in the Constitution. By, by law, our founding fathers said that you cannot be charged with a crime unless you have been indicted by a grand jury or uh, had a public uh, probable cause hearing. So, Mr. The, Shapiro, the, just to be clear, what you're saying is not that this was simply bad lawyering or an incompetent presentation of a case. You are saying, based on the record available, that it could rise to the level of an actual ethical violation or sanctionable offense by this prosecutor. I go back to what I, well, first of all, again, I say it depends on what he, what he knew and when he knew it. If he knew that the witness he was putting before the grand jury was lying, he had an ethical and legal, legal obligation not to put that witness on the stand. Um, if for no other reason that uh, he'd be tanking his own case, which raises an interesting question. Well, and the, the externally available evidence, that is to say the material they had apart from her own statements, uh, suggested that she wasn't there. The uh, diary entries that she purportedly provided uh, had these bizarre explanations, racially tinged, for why she went to that neighborhood 40 minutes away. She had no other reason to be there. And, as we've reported extensively, uh, she also had this history of inserting herself in other cases and has a host of problems that are her problems. Um, right. So it would, seem, it would seem that they right. knew then. That which, which raises uh, all kinds of flags as to why you would put that witness in uh, on the stand. If you had serious doubts about this witness, uh, about their credibility, at the very least you had an obligation, I believe, to notify the grand jurors that this witness came with this baggage. But I have to say, based on the record that we have, I think there are a number of questions that suggest that uh, this prosecutor, and just so we're clear, prosecutors are by law and by their oath, required to follow the same rules as a criminal defense lawyer or any other attorney. Right. Uh, if any attorney put a witness before a tribunal knowing that that witness was a liar and didn't tell the judge they would be guilty, in my opinion, of possibly suborning perjury, certainly uh, they, they should have a contempt hearing, and they should be looked at by their state bar for violation of their ethical right. And that, obligations. Right. And those, those are strong rules that are supposed to be enforced uniformly. I want to mention as well, uh, there are state lawmakers now there in response to this interview calling for a state investigation. Uh, Jonathan Shapiro, we thank you for your expertise and your time tonight. Here's where we are. In 1976, a young black man named Adolph Lyons was almost killed when an LA police officer put him in a chokehold. 
Lyons sued, claiming his constitutional rights had been violated, the right to due process in the Fifth Amendment, and to equal protection in the Fourteenth Amendment. The Supreme Court heard the case in 1982, and in 83, it issued its ruling. In a 5-4 decision, Lyons lost. The majority opinion, delivered by Justice Byron White, ruled that Lyons didn't have standing to sue the city of L.A., Here's reporter Dave Gilson of Mother Jones Magazine. In other words, because Lyons can't prove that he will be arrested or pulled over and subjected to a chokehold, he can't really complain about it legally. All the questions about targeting black men, about police using chokeholds, and people dying as a result? Nothing. The court punted. Except for this. The four justices in the minority who would have supported Lyons' case signed on to a scathing dissent, written by Justice Thurgood Marshall. It is indisputed that chokeholds pose a high and unpredictable risk of serious injury or death. This is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Clarence Page reading from Marshall's dissent. An officer may inadvertently crush the victim's larynx, trachea, or hyoid. The result may be death caused by either cardiac arrest or asphyxiation, he laid out a bunch of evidence that had been collected in the case, uh, starting with the fact that the Los Angeles police had killed 16 people with chokeholds in the preceding decade. Twelve have been Negro males. It is indisputed. He then talked about how chokeholds were used pretty much indiscriminately, or at least with indifference, by L.A. cops. Officer Spear testified that in instructing officers concerning the use of force, the LAPD does not distinguish between felony and misdemeanor suspects. And on the issue of standing, Marshall was deeply critical of his colleagues. And at one point he said, look, if the LAPD had a policy of shooting 10% of all suspects on site, in theory, the majority would say, well, you can't sue against that because how could you prove that you would be that one in 10 who would be shot? Since no one can show that he will be choked in the future, no one, not even a person who, like Lyons, has almost been choked to death, has standing to challenge the continuation of the policy. And under that logic, he said, the police department really can do anything it wants to suspects, and the only consequences it will face is that it might get sued for damages. So basically he was saying this is really a recipe for an unchecked use of police power. Thurgood Marshall, in his dissent, concluded that Adolph Lyons' rights had been violated and the police practice of using chokeholds should be evaluated. The majority's decision, Marshall wrote, left Adolph Lyons to play the odds with his life. Would this young black man be stopped again? Would police put him in a chokehold? And the next time, would it kill him? After Lyons lost and the city of Los Angeles won, the police chief at the time, a guy named Daryl Gates, said the Supreme Court had vindicated the force. A temporary injunction on the use of chokeholds was lifted, says reporter Dave Gilson. And on the racial issues that came out through the case, the fact that so many of those killed by police chokeholds were black men, police chief Gates responded with this. I'll just read his quote. He said, we may be finding that in some blacks... When it is applied, the veins and arteries do not open as fast as they do in normal people. Normal people. Yeah, normal people.
reading this case, listening to the oral arguments, it's hard not to think of a new name for Adolf Lyons, Eric Garner. If he had not had asthma and a heart condition and was so obese, that almost definitely he would not have died from this. That's Republican Congressman Peter King, after police were not indicted in the Eric Garner case. And he didn't raise the question of race, but he essentially blamed Garner for not being in physical shape enough to survive being put in a chokehold. And I definitely saw an echo there of what Gates had said 30 years earlier. Just one of many echoes Gilson found writing about this. He says it left him with kind of an eerie feeling. And really struck by the fact that people have known for decades the risks of using chokeholds. And this is not a new issue. It's something that police departments across the country have been confronted with for decades. You write about the echoes, and it's not just the obvious ones like the chokehold. It's that this guy gets pulled over for a broken taillight, or that these black men just being there, it seems, that causes the police in both cases to use deadly force. It's a constitutional, uh, an issue of constitutional rights, of due process. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of Lyon's arguments was, how can the police use potentially deadly force on you without even having determined that you've done anything wrong? Isn't that a violation of due process? I think that's an interesting question that the court didn't really answer, but clearly a lot of people are still wondering the same thing. So, here we are, three decades later. Some things have changed. The Federal Justice Department is running civil rights investigations into Garner's death and Michael Brown's. Many Americans are angry. But I have to say, it's pretty discouraging to find out that the Supreme Court had a chance to examine the use of chokeholds by police 30 years ago, and it punted discouraging that the first and only black man on the court at the time, the grandson of slaves, was left to hash out the racial issues in the minority opinion. How can you not wonder? Had Thurgood Marshall's view been in the majority? Had the court ordered that police chokeholds be reviewed? Would Eric Garner be alive today? A few months ago, I was given a mattress by a new company named Casper, so I could try it out and then, you know, tell you about it. And the short version is that the mattress is great. You know, I, I thought I liked my old one, but the new one is better, hands down. And in fact, the only problem with my holiday travels was that I didn't sleep as well, and I was really missing my own bed. So, you know, that's my experience. But everyone's preferences are different, so you may not feel the same, which actually brings me to the far more exciting point. Casper thinks their mattress is awesome, as do I, and they actually want to prove it to you by letting you try it out risk-free for 100 days, which beats the hell out of lying on a showroom mattress for, you know, three minutes or something. And this way, you never even have to leave your home. Shipping is free both ways, so if you decide you'd like to return it, the process is painless. Since they don't have to maintain a showroom or pay commissions to any of those creepy sales guys, you can get a twin-size mattress for only 500 
$100 or a king size for $950 with others priced in between, obviously. To help you out even more, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best. Use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. We've been talking about resisting arrest being used in the New York Police Department as a kind of shield for the usage of force. And we talked last week about how 40% of resisting arrest charges are connected to only 5% of NYPD police officers. And it would be interesting to explore why that is and some of the racial demographics that play there. And we now have data. We have data that show that black defendants are significantly more likely than white defendants to be additionally charged with resisting arrest in their cases. Now, the reasons for the disparity could vary, and we'll talk about that in a second. About 2.5% of people charged with misdemeanor drug possession in New York City also end up charged with resisting arrest. White defendants are charged with resisting arrest in 1.7% of cases, whereas black defendants are charged with resisting arrest in 3.1% of cases. So that means that a black defendant charged with misdemeanor uh, drug possession is about 85% more likely than a white defendant to be charged with resisting arrest. So let's explore that. Some might say, oh, it's, it's just straight up racism. Well, it might be, it might not be. We know that when it comes to uh, drug-related charges, we see black people disproportionately targeted by the law enforcement system because they are disproportionately likely to be dealing drugs outdoors versus indoors as are white defendants. White people just as likely to be using and dealing drugs, but doing so in a different way. So it would follow logically, you could argue, that any type of, of uh, uh, arrest interaction that's happening in a kind of street dealing situation is more likely to lead to resisting address than those happening inside people's homes or whatever else. Fair enough. So let's go on to the next category, petty theft. We're now talking about theft, a uh, more violent crime than just having drugs. 1.3% of people charged with petty theft in New York City are also charged with resisting arrest. What's the racial breakdown? Well, white defendants are charged with resisting arrest 0.9% of the time and black defendants 1.8% of the time. That is about 100% more for black defendants. Hmm, interesting. Disorderly conduct. 8.7% of those charged with disorderly conduct also are charged with resisting arrest. White defendants 6.8% of the time black defendants 11.2% of the time. Some people will email me and they'll say, David, listen, that's because black people are just inherently more likely to resist address, uh, arrest than our white people, period, case closed. And that would be an insane way to just write off this entire thing. Because remember, more black people in prison for drugs, it must be, David, because more black people do drugs or sell drugs. Well, no, we actually know that that's not the case. Well, black-on-black -black violence is a, a, an epidemic, but white-on-white -white violence isn't. Actually, no. Look at the data, and you'll see that the rate, uh, the likelihood that a black person is attacked by a black person is not that different than that of a white person being attacked by a white person. So we need to look more into these numbers 
But to just write this off and say there is no racial bias component whatsoever would be very premature. There's definitely, there is that component. I think it's a combination of things. It may not be overt racism or right. conscious racism because what you have are police officers just uh, interpreting the way black people react differently than the way they interpret uh, a white person's reaction. Absolutely. And they, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it is a combination of things. This doesn't have to be out and out racism to be informed by racial stereotypes. And as we've talked about, when you survey police officers, you see that white police officers are afraid of African-Americans and African-American police officers are afraid of Hispanics, et cetera, et cetera. And the underlying racial biases are what may be informing whether an officer sees resisting arrest in a minority suspect. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. One of the things that came up about covering these types of issues that was absolutely fascinating was uh, we were talking about implicit bias. And we are talking about implicit bias, you know, the many ways in which implicit bias contributes to this. I mean, not only contributes, I would say, is the machine that keeps the system, one of the machines that keeps the juvenile justice system going. On the end of police, you know, diversifying police departments, having, just, you know, there was a very important conversation after Ferguson saying, look at how white this police department is and how black this city is. That's bad. And it is bad. Uh -huh. But the NYPD is a very diverse police department. In, in part due to the outreach efforts of one Ray Kelly mm -hmm. as his first time as commissioner in the 90s. Right. And it's difficult to be like, okay, all the police shouldn't be white. Absolutely, that's true. In a town that is mostly black, that's absolutely true. That's going to lead to a lot of really bad problems. Yeah. We can we can say that that is true. At the same time, we can also say that making the police department more diverse will not necessarily make it less racist. And, and the NYPD is a great indicator of that. And the reason is implicit bias, even if you are not, you know, again, and, and not to say that all white police officers are, are overtly racist. You know, they aren't. Um, they might be, but but they also might not be. But we all live in the society of the criminal black man, right? We all grew up with that. Re regardless of what race you are, you've lived. And, you know, one of the... Uh, one of the speakers on one of the panels said, you know, it could be your first day out of the police academy and you get in your car and you drive down the street and you see a black man and it does not matter whether you are, it's your first day being a cop. You've never had any experience as a cop. You'll look at that person and you'll have a reaction of fear because that's the culture, that's the society, that is the white supremacist building blocks of where we live, right? Everywhere in the United States. It's our, it's in our history. So there's that end, the implicit bias as it relates to policing, as it relates to ed education, you know, school policing, sometimes educators, 
which is difficult to talk about, but also everyone has <laughs> implicit bias. And the thing that came up about journalism that was really interesting was, so there was a study from Stanford that studied implicit bias and how people react to, uh, to media stories, um, comparing people of different races. And basically, because, and there's been other studies showing this, white people basically think that the criminal justice system works. And black people, generally speaking, think it doesn't work. Uh-huh. I'm speaking very, very broadly. <laughs> you know, I wonder why these two think, why there's this difference. Um, but so white people think the system works. So with that in mind, the study showed that if a white person was reading a media report about racial disparities in the criminal justice system, saying, you know, there's so many more um, black people who are incarcerated than there are white people, or there's so many more black people incarcerated than there are proportioned to the population, which I say in almost everything I write, you know, look at how disproportionate these numbers are. Look at how disproportionately school discipline affects black and, and Latino kids. Your average, very average, generally speaking, uh, white reader read that and rather than hearing or interpreting that as this is a racist system it's disproportionate there's t- black it affects black and brown people because it's racist they interpret it as well the system is working and and that means black and brown people must be committing more crimes so it confirms their already previously held biases. It's, it's, right. a, it's And without further context, that data can actually further entrench biases and prejudices and not dislodge them, as I think sometimes, you know, if you interpret it the exact opposite way, you might think that that piece of data would dislodge previously held biases rather than further entrench them. Right, which is, yeah, and this is like a profound realization for, for someone like me, which, again, most of the things I write, I'm talking about disproportionate treatment of black and latino children and i think i'm saying look at how racist this is look at how many look at there's only nine percent of black kids in la uh in the school and they're 25 percent of the suspensions look at how racist this is but a person who has implicit bias who doesn't have a kind of you know fundamentally like aware of white supremacy kind of framework that they're reading it will read that same sentence and say wow all these 9% of black kids in LA must be committing 25% of the offenses they must wow look at how bad these kids are right they, they wouldn't be getting it if they didn't deserve it right 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 and this shouldn't be a surprise to me because anytime I write for Rolling Stone about children being disproportionately treated in the justice system uh, in the school school justice system they uh, the comments are always well black kids are are doing more stuff um right and it's because of a culture of poverty and right all that. right right um and hip-hop yeah right which i think is persuasive single parenthood and this the th- right, uh, right. things that you're just like uh, are you kidding still you're saying this stuff yeah. um, it's probably best to blame kendrick lamar and single mothers <laughs> right so on the one hand when i thought about it i was like well i guess that's not surprising based on like my experience with rolling stone comments but on the other hand it's a really 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 important thing to keep in mind uh, as a journalist as a writer and also as anyone who is ever having a conversation about this right yeah. because you have to finish the sentence you have to say black and latino children or adults it's 
you know, we're, if we're talking about disproportionate treatment by the justice system, we're talking about the same system and the same treatment of the same people, just at different ages. You have to say they are disproportionately targeted by the justice system for the same behaviors as white people, as white children, as white adults. And if you don't finish the sentence, then even, again, even not the card-carrying racist, but your average person, your average white person who just has implicit bias, who just doesn't realize how racist the system is, their implicit racism will be will be reaffirmed and not challenged, which is like a profound shift in the way that I will always approach my conversations now. There's a potent and powerful racist and classist myth that tough cops, jailers, judges, and prosecutors are all that stand between us and rampant crime, anarchy, and ruin. For American politics, it's an increasingly necessary fantasy, a myth that generations of public officials from jailing judges and hang em high prosecutors to lock em up legislators, sheriffs, governors, and even presidents have based their careers upon. The myths are necessary because no modern society can openly abandon its duty to provide its people quality educations, decent housing, living wage jobs, and economic security unless it is willing to brand large numbers of those to whom it won't provide education or housing or jobs and a dignified retirement unworthy, undeserving, and irredeemable. The American political class of both parties, including black politicians, stopped even talking about any rights to full employment, decent housing, and economic security and the like a generation ago, preferring to pretend that there is no alternative. Thus the myths of the trifling, lazy, drug-addled, crime-ridden, mostly black and brown poor are essential to the stability of America as we know it. These myths are the ethical and the moral justification of the neoliberal economic order and its prison state. Over-policing and mass incarceration don't just happen because the cops are racist, the prosecutors corrupt, and the legislators and media vicious and cowardly, nor because they're driven by the profits of private prisons or captive labor. America's savage police and prison states provide us with a long-running reality show that justifies our profoundly unequal and unjust social order. They give us a morality play that casts the criminalized and mostly non-white poor as villains kept at bay by the heroism of that thin blue line, while schools, roads, parks, public works, nature, and even water are privatized while private and public pensions are looted, while student loan debt, black unemployment, and underemployment continue to rise, and while wages continue to fall, while child homelessness is at an all-time high, and there are more vacant homes than homeless people, and while the rich and famous are celebrated and lionized for being famously rich. 
This is something that politicians from the president down to local mayors and aldermen know, and top cops from Homeland Security and the FBI to state and local departments know as well. It's something those in motion in the streets today over the last dozen and the next dozen police atrocities must better understand and articulate. The burgeoning movement against police immunity and impunity really is a threat to so-called national security, a menace to the privileges of banksters and employers, of privatizers and gentrifiers, the prerogatives of the 1%. When more of them openly question these prerogatives in the same breaths as they do the privilege of cops to murder and maim with immunity and impunity, will be a long step closer to a better world. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. For those of you who have not heard this story, uh, I think it's pretty fucking awesome in certain ways. But basically, because the NYPD is pissed off at the mayor of New York, de Blasio, they, Mayor de Blasio, they, and, and here's the thing, here's what they're upset about. This is what no one's really talking about. They're upset because he basically said that the Black Lives Matter protests have a bit of a point he is a black son. He's a white guy with a black son, and he black son, and he and he's got a white wife, but a black male man. So it's interesting. But does he really? No, he's got a black wife. Oh my uh, god! So he had to. What is so like? He said what, in his right. speech. No, no. He he said in his speech <laughs> that he had to sit down his son when he got to a certain age and say, "Listen, you know, things are going to be a little different for you." And I don't remember the wording of what he said in the speech, but it was basically like. You know, doesn't that suck here in America? If you are a person of color, you are going to deal with more harassment by the police and sometimes worse than just harassment. And uh, and that was basically all he said. He also gave all this stuff about how great the NYPD is, how great they're doing, what a great job they're doing, all that stuff. So he did all that, too. And just that little commentary on it, I guess, was enough. I don't know if there's other things they're pissed off about, but was enough to make the NYPD decide they fucking despise this man for stating a fact, by the way. That is a fact that if you are black in New York, you are the percentages of, you know, uh, uh, like in Matt Taibbi's book, which I think I mentioned on a recent show, the uh, basically every charge that this lawyer said he ever sees in court for open container, for walking around with an open container, everyone is a is a black person or a person of color. It's institutionalized racism because, uh, pl- because uh, a white prison. person with an open container would simply never be cited for it. They would just either be let off, or maybe they've never they're rarely questioned about the open container. But either way, it's like almost everyone for that charge, and that's just one example. Anyway, so they're so upset that they've been turning their back on him at these funerals. He's been speaking at the funerals of the cops that were killed, the two cops that were killed, and they turned their backs on him, and they decided that they're going to stop doing most of their job, uh, doing most of their work. Oh, this is crazy. So they've stopped. They basically said, we're only going to arrest people that absolutely need to be arrested. 
Which, you would think, isn't that the job of cops to begin with? Shouldn't you only be arresting people that need to be arrested? But no, they've been arresting all kinds of people. They've been arresting <laughs> people for no reason often. Um, and so they've, they've, uh, arrests have gone down 66%, and traffic penalties, traffic uh, citations and stuff, have gone down 94%. You know what's crazy? You know what they're thinking they're doing? They're like, oh, yeah, we're screwing over the, the, the city. Yeah. We're screwing over the mayor yeah. or something like that. Because they won't have money. Their yeah. revenue. Yeah. And all the people are like, yeah, keep saying stuff to Blasio. Like, you know, have someone, what would I wonder? It's not just about people celebrating, hey, we're not getting traffic tickets. The point, the, the, the end point is that they also, I think, thought this would, would show everybody Oh, my God, we got to get those cops back out there. Their crime has run rampant. But, in fact, it's basically the same. Like, nothing's really changed in terms of big, major crime. And, they're st you know, they're still doing what basically should be the job of the police, which is arresting the people that really need to be arrested. Yeah. Plus, how many more cops are now available for the real crimes and the real emergencies? Yeah, but also it's the sort of thing when they say we don't have to arrest people we have to arrest. There are no other people that have to be to arrest. Like, what, how, why would you arrest anybody else that you wouldn't have to arrest? It's the sort of thing like you should look at your job as arresting somebody is the last thing that you want to do. Right. Not the fucking first thing. Right. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, I don't know. You know. So, yeah, I remember DeBasio said this stuff. He said he talked publicly about how he had to talk about talk to his son when he was younger. Right. That's that yeah. was the thing that he did. You yeah, know? But I guess it's the sort of thing where it's like all these different uh, all these different groups. It's just like, you know, it's that uh, it's like, what is it called? The thin blue line or something like that. You don't uh, you know, everybody stands together on this thing ubiquitously. And and it's just you need to have some common sense about what's going on. But it's just they, they've uh, they've accidentally proved the point that perhaps cops should be arresting people that really need to be arrested, not just, you know, I, I mean, in, in Matt Taibbi's book. And, and for those of for those of you who are white or live in certain cities, you might not even realize what exactly is going on. But, uh, you know, Matt Taibbi and um, the divide gives a great kind of detailing of what it is to be, you know, a black person, in, an upstanding citizen in one of these hot, they call them hot spot neighborhoods, where the cops just, if you're out past a certain hour, they'll grab you, stop, frisk you, search you, throw you up against a wall. And, you know, some of these people he's talking to say it happens to them several times a month. And here's the thing. Lots of times they don't find anything and they let them go. But lots of times they'll just arrest them for talking back or, you know, they get thrown up against a wall and they're like, come on, man, what the fuck? You know you got nothing. And then they get thrown in a wagon and sent downtown and they get a summons. And, and basically they're, they're told by everyone not to fight the summons. They're told by their lawyer. They're told by the judge, don't fight the summons. Like, just take a plea deal. Take, you know, and the judge will be like, how about 25 bucks and we'll let you out. And so they're told, just, just accept it. I don't know what to say. I I I, just, I hate the situation so much, you know. But that being said, maybe you know, maybe the cops are onto something. If they stop doing that and stop arresting people, then there won't be as many people in our prisons, especially our for-profit 
private prisons, and that's traded publicly on the uh, stock exchange. So then all of the mutual funds and banks and everybody who's invested in that won't make any money there. And then because of that, they won't be able to pay for their kids' tuition to college because that's already gotten out of control and out of expensive. And then no one will go to school. We'll all forget how to read. Uh, and then all of their, our things will be uh, lost in some sort of big uh, fire. And then it'll be back to, like, the Middle Ages or something like that. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. So let's talk about um, Black Brunch Matters. What? What's it called? Black Brunch. Black Lives Matter, Black Brunch NYC. Yes. So over the weekend, a bunch of protesters in New York and Oakland took the fight to the streets. And by the streets, I mean brunch. Did they do them in Oakland too? I know they did them in, I know they did it in Oakland initially. The first time I heard about the Black Brunch, uh, was, uh, in Oakland, uh, uh about a month ago, uh, where they went, uh, to uh, different places where people were brunching and they would read out, uh, the live, uh, read out the names of people whose lives have been taken by police, uh, brutality. Uh, and I, it, it was a great, it was a great action. And then I heard that uh, that was what was happening this weekend. Yep. And it's been interesting because a lot of people, I, I, I was reading some of the, uh, the hashtag and people were so angry. And it was people, wasn't, I wasn't even sure these people were in New York who were angry. They were just angry at the idea that their brunch would be in, uh, interrupted. And they were like, this is a, this is not how you do it. This is how you lose, uh, lose, uh, allies in the fight. And I was like, really? This would make you not want to support li- your brunch, your, your, your brunch being interrupted would make you go, you know what, forget innocent lives being destroyed and killed and families destroyed. Like, F you. I, my brunch, like, that's what, that's, you know what, you guys deserve to be shot. Like, what is, <laughs> brunch like, how, matters. How does, how does, like, yeah, and, and I, I, I only made one comment about it because I, I, I didn't even know this was like a thing that people were generally that pissed. Like, I would like to think that I have a bit of brunch cred when it comes to this. When it comes to brunch, I brunch hard. You do I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, Aaron, I heard that. Aaron, did you hear about me brunching hard? There's a music video if you'd like me to play a song. <laughs> there is a music video. There is a I music video. I brunched quite hard. I brunched across the country. Nationally, I brunched. And I'm like, you know what? This is cool. Let it, let, let it ride. I am good with some brunch being interrupted. But I was also good with uh, with the highways being shut down. And people were really angry about that. I'm like, it's 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 un, it's uh, it's not uh, exactly uh, convenient. But you know what? I'm not really concerned about convenience at the moment. Uh, people's lives, people are dying. So get over it. You might be, it might be very, very uncomfortable for you, but that doesn't mean that it should not happen. Things being uncomfortable, if that is your, if that is your major concern, that things were uncomfortable, things were, uh, uh, made, were annoying, uh, things were inconvenient, and that's your beef, then you don't have any beef. 
What you have is you're just you're just complaining. Let, let people the people's voices need to be heard. And you know what? Sometimes this conversation has to be brought places where these conversations would normally be hidden, where it would be where it would be completely out of the range of anybody who actually um would be, would be affected. Like fact is, um, I didn't I can't imagine a big uh, a big uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest down in uh, Santa Cruz. Yeah. And so if all of a sudden someone went, or if a group of folks went down there and they uh, interrupted people's brunch, I'm like, get over it. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I was just kind of like, I don't see the point, but I, nor do I. I mean, I get it. You're disrupting and interrupting people, making people think about things they wouldn't otherwise think about. Eh, you know, whatever. But there are people out there, they're doing things, they're getting involved. That's fantastic. I find the reaction, the overreaction, negative reaction to it more than bizarre. For example, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, there was a, a guy by the name of John Cardillo who tweeted, I'm really enjoying these egg benedicts, these eggs benedict, so move along now, with a picture of a gun pointing. Do you see this? Wow. So, you know, that's classless. And then he goes on to tweet, I don't care what race you are. You storm a restaurant and scare my girl. Me grabbing your arm is the least of your worries. No, you don't, you don't have the right to touch me. Me going into a restaurant and your girlfriend being scared does not mean you get to grab me. Did I grab your Nor girlfriend? does it mean you get to put a gun in my face. Yeah, or point a gun at me. And it's, I assume that, that he didn't do that to the people that were in the restaurant. I, no, no, this was just him on Twitter being right, like, trying to be cute. Trying to be cute. But he's right. an, he's a, he, he was, he's a contributor at the Blaze, which is Glenn Beck's of course, outfit. Of course he and is. he's an ex-NYPD officer. Of course he is. Like, which is, I mean, you yeah. act like any of those things are shocking. No, like, no. But I just, but I think that, you know, I think that for the, there were some activists who considered it a threat. And I think if you take, take into consideration the fact that this guy is in New York, he has been tweeting. Oh, I do, I do believe, I, I believe they have the right to take that as a threat. I mean, please, no, no one will actually accept that as a threat. I don't believe uh, the NYPD definitely is going to do it. Well, they ain't doing Let's not go there. Uh, (laughs) And then Twitter wouldn't take it as a threat because it's just a picture. Like, uh, to actually get people to take things as an actual threat to your life is so, hard like i don't even know what to do with it but uh but no that, that it's absolutely a threat you're basically saying that god forbid i walked into your place of brunch and interrupted you you'd pull a gun on me are you kidding me yeah like no like and th- and that's the part of the issue here is the amount of uh the amount of privilege that people have uh, uh like uh, i'm not just talking about uh um racial white privilege i'm talking about uh class privilege i'm talking about uh being insulated from issues that they didn't ha- they don't normally have to deal with and now they uh now that it's being brought to them and that's part of the point i think that's why these things are powerful because they're taking it to places where like the fact is like if you march through if you march through the neighborhood if you march through a lot of oakland neighborhoods They've seen marches. They're familiar with police brutality. They're fr- familiar with the fight that's currently happening. It's the, some of these brunch spots that are not familiar with the people there are living, uh, are living completely disconnected and have never even had to be slightly inconvenienced by the idea, uh, by the very fact that people, like, like, like I said, I've mentioned on this show numerous times how my mom had to explain to me what to do not to be shot and killed. There are people who've never had that even slightly deal with that inconvenience. So one day they might have to actually not be able to just sit there and be, uh, and and, and, uh, and drink all the mimosas and have their eggs benedict in the way they want to because people are talking. You'll deal. Yeah, for, and I, for and four I, and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah. You, you'll deal. And, you'll, and, 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 may, and maybe, as opposed to uh, being all upset about your brunch being interrupted, ask why people are interrupt, interrupt, interrupting your brunch. Ask why that's happening. Ask why people feel that this is one, something that they have to do in order to get any type of attention to be uh, paid to their lives. Why isn't? Why don't you look at it from that perspective as opposed to the fact that you've been somewhat inconvenienced? All I want to do is have brunch with you And if you 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Black Brunch. To a privileged group of mostly white people, brunch is held up as almost sacred. The word provokes images of leisure and lazy Sundays, mimosas, Bloody Marys, and my personal go-to, French toast. And though plenty of socially conscious people eat brunch, some even use it to organize because, well, brunch is certainly cheaper than dinner, it still has that feel to it, that, you know, doing what you want when you want because you can feel. So a group of creative organizers in Oakland decided they would take peaceful protesting to a group that, on the whole, doesn't engage and has the privilege to ignore social injustice, specifically racial injustice. And so Black Brunch was launched with protests in the Bay Area and Manhattan. Writer Muna Meyer describes the goals of the protest and the organizing on the hashtag, quote, The idea behind Black Brunch is to target those who can afford to avert their gaze, bringing the struggle for racial justice to the table, literally, so that it's impossible to ignore. Brunch is the hallowed tradition of the affluent, the comfortable, and often those with enough white privilege to insulate them from the struggle to end the war on black life in America, unquote. Predictably, the first round of protests, especially in New York, were met with mixed reactions. While some stood when asked at the end of the demonstrations, many couldn't resist being ridiculously racist and threatening. Posts to social media like the one made by former NYPD officer John Cardillo proved why the protests are so necessary. Holding his gun up in front of his nose with his finger on the trigger, he wrote, I'm really enjoying these eggs, Benedict, so move along now, and posted to the hashtag when a group briefly interrupted his meal. Michelle Malkin called the coordinated wave of actions attack of the black brunch brats and wrote for the New York Post, opposing racism now means practicing it in the most obnoxious manner possible. I guess because the extrajudicial death of a person of color at the hands of police isn't obnoxious or even reason enough to put down your biscotti for four and a half minutes. That's a time chosen to honor the four and a half hours Mike Brown's body was left in the street in Ferguson. Black brunch protests are organized and carried out by people of color, as is, I'm sure, clear from the name and the description. My job as a privileged white guy is simply to amplify the organizing, especially with an action that can be taken in any city around the country by a small group of individuals, and also to pass along some advice to my fellow whiteies who recognize their privilege but want to support these actions without co-opting them. And so, should you, white listener, find yourself at a black brunch unexpectedly, Derek Clifton of Mike News has some tips on how to recognize your privilege and handle yourself and your potential discomfort appropriately. One, remain calm and listen. Two, use the time to reflect on the issue. Three, if you are able, stand in support when asked. Four, continue eating as usual after the demonstration ends. And five, share what happened with friends and family. Please follow the hashtag, simply the title of the action, Black Brunch, and remember that one of the most powerful things you can do is to push back on the racism in your networks. Post the stories, videos, and articles on your social networks and respond to the comments you hear in your daily life. White silence only strengthens the toxic status quo, so it's time we all did more shouting. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is our archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If a safe and just society matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Black Brunch via social media so that others in your network can get involved with the movement to end the routine extrajudicial execution of people of color in this country. Activism. 
torn out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Bob McCullough was the prosecutor in the Ferguson case and the Darren Wilson case. Uh, and he's the guy that uh, we uh, voted to jerk of the year because he threw that case. There was no question about it. In fact, he came out and admitted that he put on people that he knew were lying. He put them on the stand to make a case for the defense. He's the prosecutor. And it's in a grand jury process where he doesn't have to present the defense at all. He can present whatever he likes to get the outcome that he wants if he wants an actual trial. But it doesn't mean that he gets to convict uh, Darren Wilson. No, that's when you have the trial. Grand jury is to determine whether you get the trial or not. He admits that he put on well-known liars who have lied on very prominent cases in the St. Louis area before. And he also admitted uh, that if he wanted to, he could have gotten an indictment. He chose not to. Those are his admissions. He said it to a, a talk show host in Missouri. It's, it was amazing, amazing that he admitted that. Well, now a grand juror is suing him, saying, wait a minute now. Now, you say that I can't speak out about what happened in the grand jury. That's true. According to Missouri law, you can't, right? And that is the case in a lot of places. So, but now this situation is a little different because uh, you released all the transcripts uh, uh, of the proceedings and all the different things that we looked at. Now, first of all, we didn't really actually look at all those things. A lot of things were redacted, and you didn't give any of the context. And then you went out and did all these interviews, but then we can't answer for ourselves. And you made it seem like we all agree with you when we don't agree with you. So it's a grand juror Doe because he can't release his or her name. We don't know who it is by law. But they're suing McCullough to say, uh, according to St. Louis Public Radio, in the grand juror's view, the current information available about the grand juror's views is not entirely accurate, especially the implication that all grand jurors believe that there was no support for any charges. Moreover, the public characterization of the grand juror's view of witnesses and evidence does not accord with Doe's own. So there he is. He's saying, look, man, you keep saying that we all agreed. We didn't agree. You keep saying that um, all these witnesses uh, led in this direction, all the evidence led in that direction. But that's not what I thought. That's not what we thought. But you won't let us speak. I mean, just when you thought McCullough's bad, he gets worse. It was obvious that he threw the case in the first place. Then he publicly admits it, pretty much, based on what I told you about his quotes a second ago. And now, when people say, okay, but then let me speak out and tell my side of it. He says, nope, no way. You hush up. All right. In the McCullough lawsuit, they say, from the grand jury's perspective, the investigation of Wilson had a stronger focus uh, on the victim than in the other cases presented to the grand jury. So that's really interesting, too. Because the grand jury sits in on a lot of cases. They're like, look, we go through all these cases, McCullough's... You know, saying, okay, indict, 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 and all these other cases. He gets to the Wilson case. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not saying indict. I'm here are a bunch of defense witnesses, some of them who I know to be liars, who I know are going to lie to you. But he doesn't tell the grand jury that. He just says it afterwards, of course. And he claimed in the interview, oh, the grand jurors must have known that she was a liar. Witness number 40. How would, how would they know that? And why did you let her commit perjury? So this grand juror wants to say, well, I didn't know that. You didn't let me know that. But uh, according to the law, no, they, he has to shut up. 
Well, so what's McCullough been doing since? McCullough has done several interviews since uh, the grand jury decision was announced on November 24th. But the grand jurors have been prohibitive from speaking about the case. The county prosecutor admits that some of the witnesses were lying, but said the grand jurors were aware. The 12 people who could say for sure are currently sworn to secrecy. Well, isn't that convenient? Unfortunately, this is haunting, but it is symbolic of what happened to Michael Brown. We only hear Darren Wilson's version because Michael Brown is dead. So one side gets to speak out with a megaphone. The other side can't say anything because they're deceased. Now, in the case of the grand jury, one side says, here's all the evidence. Here's everybody who agreed with me. And when the other side says, but wait a minute, we didn't all agree to that. He says, no, 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 no. You guys have no voice. I have all of the voice. Yeah, I wonder why people are protesting. Does this seem even-handed to you? Does this seem like a process that gives faith to people in the American justice system as executed by Bob McCullough? No, no, no. this is exactly what the problem is. Hey, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. I'm calling in to the voicemail about the show that you compiled in response to Ferguson. That was an incredibly, incredibly moving show. The stories that you pulled together and the stories, you know, that people had shared were just heart-wrenching and sad, but also paradoxically hopeful and motivating. Very often, and it's almost a joke that's gone too far, but the shows that you produce can make me depressed and mad and, you know, motivated at the same time. But this was just, this was different. And it was different in a good way. But just the heart-wrenching pain that the clips brought out was super powerful. And just thank you for that. Thank you for pulling that together and sharing, um, sharing those clips. I don't have anything to add at all. It was just good. Thanks, Jay. Hello, this is uh, your brother, Vi Meredith. That would be V-P-H-I-A-M-E-R-A-D-I-S. And I am from Central New York. Uh, I was listening to episode 881, one of the best you have ever done. An amazing, amazing contribution. And um, a question which has been asked by a lot of people and it's been on my mind recently, um, what could be done? What could be done? Particularly about the police shooting, but what could be done about the relationship between blacks and police officers? Well, the simple question is there is nothing uh, that could be done. The history of policing suggest that police are doing exactly what they were meant to do. We've all become kind of anesthetized by this idea of what policing is supposed to be by watching TV. But what they're showing you on TV is nothing more than propaganda. It's a lie. What policing was meant to be and what it has always been is anti-black. It has always been anti-labor. It has always been anti-activists. And when you do the research, and I invite all of you to do the research, 
you will see that some of the most staunch critics of progress, whether it was in labor relations, race relations, anti-war, you name it, some of those staunch critics standing at the vanguard were police officers. So what do you do? To be honest with you, the only solution that I can come up with is to resurrect something that was growing, actually, up until the McCarthy era. And then um, they were kind of rooted out and, and thrown out. It was called the Social Workers Movement. Now, presently, we have something called the Social Worker, which is a governmental title. But that wasn't what the Social Worker was meant to be. The Social Worker was meant to go out and actually solve the issues of poverty. Some of the civil rights movement ideas about working with poverty, working on behalf of individuals needing certain rights, and doing the organizing came from the radicals within the within not only the social worker, but the socialist and the communist uh, movements. Not to mention, of course, pan-Africanism, uh, or the pan-Africanists. Uh, people came from that diaspora, too. But they realized that the model which was typically used to solve the issues wasn't working because it wasn't meant to work. It was meant to perpetuate a certain amount of poverty and, uh, well, basically wealth uh, inequality. So that's something that needs to be done. On a broader sense, on a broader scale, how you can kind of bring together blacks and whites in general, which would help actually curtail problems with the police because if blacks and whites have a really good relationship, then when whites or blacks become police officers, it's going to make it that much more difficult for that person to see blacks as a problem. How you do this is very simple. Education. Education, education, education. And this doesn't only exist in a schoolroom. Education must be a complete social paradigm. And this means with the media, this means with the newspaper, and of course it means with schooling. Jeremiah Wright, right after uh, he was kind of thrust into the spotlight back in 2008 for saying Goddamn America, steps before the press club and gave, I think it was a 30-minute address, which was followed up by some questions. And one of those questions was, how would you improve race relations? And his answer actually began me on a quest to learn about black, not only history, but black culture. He said, we need to start with education. And we need to start with the infusion program, which was developed in the 80s by Afrocentrist philosophers and historians for the Atlanta public school system. I'm not saying this is something that everybody needs to do, but I would encourage you all to look on YouTube for something called um, African American History, a second uh, look. All right, Brother Jay, uh, again, very good episode to all my sisters and brothers. Peace.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubuzik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I only have a couple of quick notes for you today. Uh, the first of which is that, you know, I assume people are still sort of groggy from the holidays and whatnot, and they haven't quite maybe caught up on the show or their energy levels are down so they haven't been calling in and i'm just saying you should call into the show i'm I'm running a little low on voicemails and uh, the two i played today were actually kind of from a few weeks back you maybe sort of noticed and if, if we don't have some help from some other people calling in, it's going to be nothing but uh, calling from Cleveland and Wade from uh, Fort Worth. And, you know, I mean, I enjoy their comments uh, as well as their uh, apparently flowering bromance as much as the next guy. But, you know, for the sake of the show, I, I like to mix it up when I can. So if you want to chime in, that number again, 202-999-3991. And then uh, last thing. Rico is an existing member, has been a member for a while, and in December wrote in, as members sometimes do, and said, you know, I've been a member, but I never took advantage of all the bonus content that you have. Could you remind me how to access that? And so when I did, I I got this message from Rico that I wanted to uh, share with you, because I think it gives a, a better sense of what membership has in store than than I usually provide. So Rico writes, holy shit, Jay, what a treasure trove. I mean, seriously, I cannot believe I overlooked this stuff when I first joined. Okay, so I already downloaded all the bonus stuff to my phone, and I think I'll download some of the best ofs. Wow, I am in lib hippie heaven, man. And to think I was worried about running out of podcast material to listen to during this long holiday stretch when a lot of the shows are going to be on vacation. And it, it kind of went on from there. So, you know, if you're maybe on the fence about a Best of Life membership, uh, perhaps that will tip you over onto the side of actually signing up. That can be done at the website, of course. Uh, but that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming members or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained we can see past our sad stories and wonder what we're missing we can see past our sad stories and forget how See